All right, everybody, welcome back to the TMT Time, a production podcast of Arnold and Porter's TMT Technology, Media, and Telecommunications Group. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. I am very pleased to be welcoming back into the podcast Jamie Vibbert, our privacy dynamo, uh, all things privacy all the time. And we teased what we're going to talk about today in the end of our last podcast. And if you didn't listen to it, go back and listen to it. Come on, guys. We're going to talk about health data, privacy, and the intersection of those two things. Jamie, welcome back into the podcast. Thanks so much, Evan. And I'm going to say things that won't make any sense unless you listen to the first one. So you better go back and listen to it first. <laughs> I, I spoilers. Gonna say, I'm going to say spoilers gonna, in this one. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, say things that you won't understand, Evan. And I was just nodding in agreement. <laughs> yep, you're probably right. <laughs> Let's talk about health data for a little bit and how it intersects with privacy. How is new technology, the pandemic, everybody working remotely, how, what's happening with health data right now? So, and I think this happened over the past three years, partially driven by the pandemic, but partially just driven by technology. There have been huge advances focused on on improving patient outcomes um, for the most part, but huge advances in how health data is used for treatment purposes and for, you know, to, to improve people's lives. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of that. So, you know, there is technology, AR, VR technology that people can wear while they're getting certain, you know, cancer treatments or, or other procedures done because it alleviates pain to have, um, visual of, you know, a comfortable or safe space or a familiar space or sunny space. So they're taking this kind of augmented and virtual reality technology and applying it in the um, patient care setting. There's a lot of use of AI in connection with health data. So this can be kind of understanding data sets, obviously that, that kind of a AI algorithm. But they're also using it to do things like assist in surgery. So the AI can identify certain actions taken during surgery so that, as an example, a physician doesn't leave a sponge in the patient. Like the, the AI recognizes when the sponge goes in and can, you know, throw up a flag on a screen that says, hey, don't forget to, <laughs> they're about to sew the patient up. Hey, don't forget you put a sponge in there. Um, or, Hey, you're about to cut on the wrong leg. Um, and so there are lots of uses for AI in health data. There are connected devices, right? So you can take certain data from a, you know, insulin monitor and, and help manage diabetes, um, with, with these connected devices. And then you have things like wearables which is kind of soft health data, right? Like steps, stairs, you know, heart rate, that kind of stuff, what I'll call soft health data. And, you know, companies are figuring out how to take that, that wearable data and to translate that into improved outcomes for consumers, patients, the like. So there is all of these uh, there are all of these um, applications for this kind of technology health data 
combine. At the risk of outing myself as a tech nerd, Jamie, I play a game called Pokemon Go with my son. And we have opted in to the health app on our iPhones so we can get extra steps to catch more Pokemon. I will stop for a moment and say, makers of Pokemon Go Niantic, if you're listening to this, and I hope you are, we'd love to work with you. But in any event, I have the tracking portion of my phone on in Pokemon Go so I can hatch these eggs and catch more Pokemon. I'm like, it makes my son excited and we love playing together. What's happening in our data? Who's collecting it? Where's it going? So it depends. Um, what I will say is the way that health data is regulated. So what you're talking about is probably not health data regulated by the health laws, at least in the United States, although it might be, might be considered health data in the EU. And the way that health data is regulated is, is much stricter than the way that personal information more broadly is regulated. And so unless you kind of specifically consented to um, crazy uses of your data, it's probably not crazy um, to the extent that it's considered health data. If it's Is not- Is it fair to say that I clicked it and I didn't read it? Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> Is it fair to say that I'm not surprised? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, of course not. Um, so, you know, really when you're, when you're thinking about that kind of soft health data, which is what I'm going to continue to call that, a lot of times you're not going to get a ton of protections there. And in order to use, to do this fun thing with your son, you're going to have to consent if you want to participate in the app in this way. And there's not going to be a lot of choice um, about it. In these other uses of health data, what happens is, you know, what I've seen happen is that companies who are trying to be innovative with health data for, for good and true purposes like treatment um, get all wound up in the laws and feel like privacy is going to prevent them from accomplishing this public good. And all I'll say there is that's not true, right? Like if, if there is a public good Privacy law is not going to prevent you from getting there. So what, how does privacy law intersect with this? So the, the, the laws governing health data are a lot older in the United States. I'll just stick with the United States for a second. They're a lot older than the new privacy laws. And really I'm talking about HIPAA and HIPAA is a very unique privacy law because it was never really intended to be a privacy law. It was, it was intended to be an anti-discrimination and insurance law. And so it only protects health data when that health data is in the hands of, 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 a, of an entity, a covered entity, um, or that covered entity service provider, right? So it only protects health data in the hands of this covered entity, um, which is, you know, think about hospitals, health insurers, um, health plans, that kind of thing. But if that same set of data doesn't live in the hands of one of these covered entities or their service providers, it's not protected by HIPAA. And the example that I always give on this to really make it 
understandable to people is my, my husband is a doctor, which is, I know surprising because I'm such a lunatic and he's, you know, saving people's lives or whatever. But if he had a back, you're, you're saving people's privacy, though, <laughs> Jamie, he's saving lives and you're keeping them sacred information private, right? That's both doing the good. That's right. Both of you. When my, when my, you, you may be above him. You may be above. He just fell down the rung a couple of notches. That's right. You can tell him that. That's right. When, when my kid was three and in preschool and they asked what his parents did, he said, well, my daddy goes to work in a helicopter and my mom talks on the phone all day. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "Mm, close. (laughs) The helicopter lands on his building. He's not actually flying in it. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Um, But so if he had a basketball of health data, it would be protected health information covered by HIPAA when he held it in his hands. And then if he passed the basketball to me, it was the same protected health information. He passed it to me. I'm not a covered entity. He is because he's a doctor. I'm not because I talk on the phone all day. If, if, if he hands it to me, it's not protected health information. It falls completely outside of HIPAA at that point. And so you have these, these laws that don't quite fit the way that health data needs to be protected and moved around um, these days. And even in the, so to go outside of the US, in under the GDPR and in Canada and in Turkey and Australia and lots of, lots of different places, health information has this, the, it's protected under a higher standard as sensitive data. And they, uh, most of those laws have a a higher restriction to how you can, what, under what circumstances you can process that data. And one of those circumstances is explicit consent. And, you know, I can, I'm just going to launch into this right now. The reason that explicit consent doesn't work with health data is because if you are processing data in order to treat someone, they can't withdraw consent. Right. So you can think about this in, you know, kind of a a very basic privacy principle in the, in, you know, is that in order for consent to be valid, it has to be freely given. Right. So you have all of these laws all across the world that have consent as the basis for processing sensitive data, including health data. Now you go into the ER because you have a gunshot wound to the, to the abdomen and the doctor Definitely. You went very extreme there. You could have said something like you fell off the jungle gym and hurt your arm. You went right to gunshot. I'm okay (laughs) with that. That's, that's crazy, but keep going. Uh, (laughs) It's Friday. I don't know. Um, Yeah, that's true. It's, it's, you know, Friday gunshot day. So aggressive, aggressive. (laughs) I like it, Jamie. All right, keep going. So um, yes. So you go in and it needs to be, it needs to be, you know, kind of aggressive in order to, to make it clear. And the doctor does have to say to you, Hey, I'm going to do whatever I think in my best judgment, I'm going to do in order to treat you. And by allowing me to treat you, you consent to me doing whatever it is that I need to do to treat you. And implied in that is the fact that like, your health data is going to get processed in connection with that. Now, what can't happen is on day two, you know, the bullets out and you're laying in the bed and whatever, 
you can't wake up that day and say, Hey, thanks so much for treating me. I'm withdrawing my consent to your processing of my health data, right? Then if, if privacy law was going to listen to that, right? Then you have a John Doe in a bed that you don't know what medicines he's on because you can't track the person as it goes through. So even though a lot of these laws have a consent requirement for the processing of sensitive data, one of the things that I see most often is people trying to get consent in the context of health data inappropriately. And there are other bases, like typically like treatment, right? There are other bases to rely on to process that data, you know, legally <laughs> under the privacy laws. And you should, as much as possible, rely on those, um, on those other bases for processing because consent is not real in these situations. It's just not real. Well, Jamie, you work with a lot of companies in the life sciences space, like pharmaceutical companies and medical device manufacturers. How do the privacy laws impact them when it comes to this type of data? Well, frankly, all of those life sciences companies and, and healthcare companies, right? Hospitals and the, and the like, all of them have realized that they have this treasure trove of data that they were originally just collecting in order to either sell the, the widget, right? Whether it was a drug or a device, right? They're only collecting data in order to sell the widget. And the hospitals kind of traditionally were only collecting the data in order to provide treatment or the labs or whatever. And now you have all of these companies waking up and saying, whoa, we have these tools that can go through all of this data that we have, that we collected for a completely different purpose, but we can have it go through that data and tell us stuff. Like tell us that, you know, 43 year old women who, you know, wear wigs and live outside of Philadelphia are more likely to, you know, get diabetes or eczema or gunshot wound then you know you went aggressive again and this time it was on yourself and we're gonna we're gonna say maybe none of those things how about maybe likely to get hypertension in 20 years how about that <laughs> maybe, so you're saying that maybe likely to to uh um to look amazing when they're old that's what, that's yeah, what I'm there you go more likely incredible. to look amazing incredibly good looking when they hit 60 <laughs> <laughs> but but the point is like it could it could really have a positive impact on people's lives and the problem is is that when people collected this data in the first instance they didn't know <laughs> that they were going to want to use it the way that they want to use it now and so the real way that this affects clients now is, you know, number one, how can, how can I legally access those past troves of data in order to do this public good? And what steps do I need to take today so that how do I think creatively and broadly enough so that I can use the data that I'm collecting today in the future? So you help, so I have two questions. What is the public good? Who who decides that? Who defines it? How is it interpreted? And do you or do you get brought in by these companies that I mentioned in the life sciences and pharmaceutical space to help them put these types of policies together 
now and how do you sort of future proof them? I try to think as, so yes, they bring me in both to get them to a place where they can use the old data and to make, to reduce risk in using future data by, by broadly thinking about the potential uses of the data. So yes, that's what I, I spend a lot of my time doing that. Um, and I feel good about it. And the privacy laws don't say public good, right? What they say is typically what they say is something like you can use health data for treatment purposes or for quality and safety purposes. And so then it's just like doing what lawyers do best, which is to say, say things in the right way so that they are treatment or quality or safety. Yeah. Cause I, I'm like, I'm concerned. Like I go to the hospital for something, not a gunshot wound, but like, you know, an ingrown toenail or something like that, something benign, Jamie. And they collect my data, your, your clients, and then they're selling it to my insurance company, who then turns around and says, Evan, you are prone to ingrown toenails, and now we're going to raise your rates. That's exactly what HIPAA was enacted to prevent. Okay, so, so that does not happen is what you're saying. That does not happen. That's, okay, good. That makes me feel better. That's not, I will say what the insurance companies are getting is aggregated data that say in general, so that they can do their actuarial tables. Right. Um, you know, extremely good looking, extremely in shape males, roughly my age may or may not get more ingrown toenails than others. Right. Okay. Right. So then they can just price that. Right. So then when you come yep. not, not on an individual Evan basis, but like in general, we're going to charge slightly more for very, very good looking males of your age range to account for all of the <laughs> ingrown toenails. Also in really good shape too as well. Oh, I'm sorry. That one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so even in that instance, if it's anonymized and it's aggregated, you're still saying that the privacy laws have to keep up with and you're going to advise clients on like, if it's collected for one purpose now, even in this format, these companies may want to use it in that format for another purpose down the line. For the most part, once it's truly anonymized and that can be actually de-identified in the United States, which means that it can still be key coded. But once it's truly anonymized and we can make it a global statement, there's not a lot preventing you. There's not a lot in the privacy laws preventing you from using the data however you want to use it. The thing is you have to tell people at the beginning, Hey, we're going to anonymize your data and use it for whatever the hell we want to use it for. Right. Like we're going to do this with your data. Um, or we're going to de-identify your data. And a lot of times that's not written into notices of privacy practice or, you know, under HIPAA or privacy notices. So you just want to, you want to try to tell people what you're going to do with it. And there are particularly when you are trying to do a clinical study under the FDA or other, other, you know, bodies like that globally, it's not a privacy law, but they are going to want to know that the people whose data that you're using had some idea that their data or samples or whatever it is, was being used for these purposes. So do you think that the, the privacy law regime with respect to healthcare data is keeping up with the innovations in health technology or drug, 
development or telehealth. I mean, there's a lot of innovations in healthcare, which is pretty awesome. But is privacy law keeping up with that? No. And and I just don't think that these privacy, the privacy law drafters really were thinking about how this was actually going to work in practice when they drafted it. Um, and that's why I think that there are all these problems with the way that the privacy laws handle health data. And, you know, we have come up with solutions, but, but it's hard. And I do think that the, that the time is ripe for either a completely separate regime for things like health data or for a recognition that you can't govern health data in the same way that you govern, you know, cookies and, you know, ad data. All right. Well, Jamie, we're out of time. Now you're going to have me go eat some cookies. Appreciate that end point. I really appreciate you joining us here in TMT time for the second time. Maybe we'll get you back in here again for a third or fourth time, but really nice to see you again. Hope to see you once again here. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Evan. All right. We had to get you out of here. So, um, was that long enough? Was it good? I think that was 20 full, 20 minutes, 21 minutes. Look at me. Look, it, it was way easier than I thought it was going to be because uh, I actually do this for a living. <laughs> Dude, it's it's not hard. I just got to come up with things to, to ask, but your notes are good. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for having me. All right, me. you go. I'm going to go yep. do some privacy weekend. diligence. It's oh, <laughs> riveting. <laughs> yeah, this, this company, this company that they're trying to buy has um, reviews about these OTC vitamins and products um, all over it. And no, no bueno, they're going to get in trouble. So I should not pay as much. Bye. (laughs) See ya. You too. I thought it was pretty good too. They're all different. I like it. Interesting. Were you guys were you guys interested? Was it intriguing-ish? Yeah, very good. We talk all the time, so I mean we Yeah, so I sent you the one for Ian. Well, he's booked. Dina said she doesn't think she can do Tuesday anymore. So he's booked Tuesday. Alex, I don't know if you sent out. I don't think you sent out the invite yet for that one. Um, and then I'm um, talking, I think we may be able to, the the Entain people in London and Gibraltar, I'm not sure we'll be able to record them quick enough next week. Um, but I will get one more person to do it next week to get two more. And I think... After the Matt Wolf one, we should now do one a week in terms of like releasing it because it's going to be hard to get that many to keep up um, until we have more. So I think that's how we should do it from now on, basically. That's, that's sufficient enough. I think one a week's like enough to post. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I got a thing found that was it gave me something to Google and research. Read a lot about it. Read read a lot about best practices for podcasting. I don't do a lot of them, but 
I read them. <laughs> I read them. I digested it. Some of it I can't do. <laughs> so it was quiet here today, though. Hopefully there wasn't that much feedback or noise from anybody. Awesome. Okay. All right. You have a great weekend. Yeah, nice to see you guys. Talk soon. Bye.